Welcome back to The Craft, where we explore what we're learning about the creative process. I'm Colby. I'm a music producer and product manager. And I'm Carter, a PhD candidate and a writer at the University of Kentucky. And today we're doing a really exciting episode for me. Uh, and we're talking about the launch of my Substack dwelling, embracing the non-identical in life and art, which we can talk about. But really, we want to do two things today. One, introduce everyone to the Substack, talk a little bit about what it's going to be about, but then also give some general comments and experiences from the process of starting it. So I've been doing it now for a good month and a half and learning a lot about Substack. So we also wanted to kind of give some, yeah, just relate some information and experiences from what it's like to start a Substack from scratch. So like I didn't have a email list to migrate onto the platform and, you know, the changes that are happening within the last couple months at Substack and just kind of what it's like to, to start one. So that's the kind of plan for today. Where should we start if, if that's the broad roadmap? I have a bunch of questions for you, but could you just start with what is dwelling and why did you start a Substack? Yeah. So why did I start a Substack? Right now, I really believe that we're in a pivot point in how writers are reaching audiences. So the old way is submit a ton of submissions to bunches of journals and magazines, even online magazines. Oftentimes, they're really slow to respond. Some are quick, but some are really slow to respond. You're kind of just guessing at their readership, you know, how much traffic's going through this. You're trying to land publications, but it's really haphazard especially if you don't have an agent. That's a whole other thing, trying to get a literary agent. But it's a really haphazard thing that's frustrating a lot of the times because you're trying to match pieces to what the editors are wanting. And this is just kind of the way at least online publications have worked. And so as I'm trying to really get into more creative nonfiction writing, so I love scholarly work, working on the dissertation right now, but I also love creative nonfiction and I want to develop a career as a nonfiction writer as well, I was thinking, well, it's like I can go through this process of pitching, and I pitched four or five journals for this California trip. I only like heard back from one. We talked about the California trip with Hemingway's style a couple episodes ago. But it was just, it's this frustrating thing of not getting responded to, not even a rejection. So as I was thinking about this summer's work and the prospect of trying to find journals, not knowing kind of what their presence is in the online space. It was almost like a light bulb went off one day of like, well, there's nonfiction writers that I really like who get to talk about all sorts of things and don't have these editorial constraints on them. They also write for big journals, but they have this kind of more informal, really interesting presence on Substack. And so for me, Substack became a possibility here to, one, hone my craft, experiment with genres, try to become a better writer, try out different things, get some feedback on that, have a practice of, of weekly you know, writing that is not scholarly. So one, opportunity to hone the craft, but two, it's kind of a new way, I think, to approach getting an audience and a presence. And so long-term, right, I'd love to grow an audience for dwelling, engage with ideas that I'm interested in. A lot of dwelling has been, what is the th what are the things that I love to read, 
right? And then trying to allow that to guide some of the, the work. But eventually have this dwelling as almost a proof of concept that can maybe open doors to more traditional publishing. But also, I think my inclination, and take this for what it's worth, is that publishing is moving towards not like the cheesy self-publishing that you see, but you've got writers who are writing for established traditional media who are migrating to Substack for so many different reasons, for creative control, for the environment, for the lack of pressure to like optimize SEO and hit keywords and have a certain stance. Like Even writers who are crushing it in traditional media they're moving towards Substack for a lot of different reasons. So I do think this is kind of a direction that publishing's going, and I want to be involved in that. That's really interesting. So I just want to talk a little bit more about the specifics of dwelling before we go into even more of this behind-the-scenes stuff. You said on your About page, I'm just going to read a little section of it here, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. You talk about embracing the non-identical in life and art. And so I'd love to talk about this idea of non-identical. You said that what then is a non-identical? This is a thing in itself as opposed to the, to its abstract concept. For example, the apple in my hand is not just another apple. It has a unique shape, history, markings, color, etc. These details are flattened or erased by the concept apple. In reality, nothing is actually an apple because every apple is non-identical. One is never completely equivalent to another, nor is the true platonic apple something that exists. Beyond concepts or actualities, the details that we miss. I loved reading that the first time. It's super interesting. Where did that idea come from for you? And uh, can you talk a little bit more about like the, the non-identical? The non-identical I'm taking from Theodore Dorno. And it's the idea that oftentimes abstractions cause a lot of problems. So when we abstract to something, we start to deal with the concept instead of the thing in itself. And so when we start to abstract, things quickly become quantifiable and countable, and we can sell them and calculate with them. And so we immediately start to kind of switch to our quantitative brain. And what I see as one of the predominant focuses of the humanities is to develop our qualitative tastes and to engage with things like beauty and goodness and truth and these things which we don't calculate. They're not equations. They're in a different kind of world. And so the non-identical is a way to say, how can we turn our focus from the broad concepts and in its worst version, the political buzzwords that are like, they're so broad and unwieldy that they hardly mean anything at all. How can we move to the thing in itself? And so I stopped dealing with things like, you know, moving from the vagueness of style to an actual use of polysyndeton or a rhetorical device or moving from something like style to, you know, the feeling of a corduroy jacket on a September day and what that what that's like. Moving from the abstract and the vague to really having thoughtful meditations on the particular. And so practicing recognizing the particular in both life, so like the pleasures of spring motorcycling, that, that essay was about something very particular, riding a motorcycle in spring, but then also in art and thinking about how artists are using rhetorical devices, but also like the, the lamps of prose, that's trying to get about the very particular usage of prose writing, right? And so in both cases, 
in life and art, I want to start to recognize the particular because the other piece of it is the non-identical. I kind of combine it with Heidegger's idea of being at home. Uh, And so by paying attention to the particular, we can become more at home in the world. And when we're at home, right, we do things to protect home and to cultivate home. And this idea that you get from Wendell Berry and from other environmental-minded writers of, yeah, to be at home means to be familiar with the place. And you're not familiar with this giant abstract, the environment that Wendell Berry doesn't like when people use that. You're familiar with blank, blank, wherever you live, that place, that physical place and the trees there and the grass there and the place there and the people and the community. And so by paying attention to the particular, that's part of a broader attempt to dwell, right? To be at home, to be familiar and intimate with place. So that's that's the other, that's the big connection. So Heidegger and Adorno there. One, I love that idea. But two, you mentioned the seven lamps of prose, your, your spin on this topic. Can we talk a little bit about that for a few minutes? So this is a, a series that you started, maybe by the time someone's listening to this, it's actually been finished. And it's a very interesting how you're taking these concepts from writing about architecture, applying them to writing specifically. What have you learned so far on that? And maybe talk a little bit about the first two articles you've already put out. The Seven Lamps of Architecture, this has been a really fun project. I I was reading it just because I'm interested in architecture. Roger Scruton, who I, I really enjoy, talks about this book. And as I was reading it, I was thinking these principles probably could apply across disciplines. So, for example, the first two, sacrifice and truth, you don't expect the architecture principles to be sacrifice and truth. You'd think like foundation and, I don't know, columns. or, or you know, They're not really architectural terms. Like to go on, power, beauty, life, memory, obedience, these lamps are very much kind of creative principles. And so I, I kind of was like, okay, I wonder if there's going to be some compelling overlap between these creative principles of architecture and prose. And so as I was getting into it, it's like those connections just started appearing. And it's very similar to kind of the things that we talk about on the craft, how there are things about revision that are just you know, applicable to a, a number of disciplines. And so as I was seeing these connections, I was like, this might be an interesting thing to kind of tease out. Hemingway also, you know, famously said that prose is architecture. And so there's almost even that really nice hook of, well, if prose is architecture, let's combine these things together. And so it really just happened. But the first two have been a lot of fun in trying to think about how something like artistic sacrifice and this idea of dedication to something and the idea of not trying to to falsify something with the second lamp, how they can really become like for Ruskin, these guiding principles that help underlie specific action. And so they're kind of on the on a basement level before you get to the, the real practicalities. And so with the series, I don't plan to do a ton of like super concrete practicalities, although I try to give some examples that help to illuminate that. But I do want to say, okay, if we were to sit down and say, what are the pillars, the seven guiding lights for prose, what would they be? And so, I mean, this is something that, let's see how it goes, and I could totally see writing a book on this, right, and having the seven lamps of prose. And so, again, it's a place where I can work through ideas, but I can also hopefully offer something helpful, mm-hmm. 
and kind of test them out too. And so if it's a project that I want to expand, you know, at the end of this, you know, I'll have hopefully seven small chapters. And then if I wanted to expand this to a larger manuscript, there you go. There's the blueprint. There's the skeleton for it. So yeah, that's some about that series. I love it. And I've really enjoyed the se- series so far. So I, I highly recommend and want to plug that to anyone who is listening to go check that out and read it. Since one of the big goals of this Substack for you is to hone your craft and to have a place for feedback, can you maybe share a little bit about like, what does your process look like? And then also, what does it look like in a best case scenario for you to look back a year or two from now and say, man, I came from here to there because I was getting this feedback or whatever? Okay, I'm going to take the second part first, I think. One, practice hone skills, which I'll talk about in a second. But the other one is that I am really inspired by writers who are able to almost make a living or make a substantial secondary income from their work. And what Substack is offering is basically a more, and this is in my conceptualization, a more direct relationship between reader and writer. So instead of a publication paying the writer for something, right, you've got a direct correlation between if you're putting out quality work and people value that work, right, they can support you. So oftentimes it's right, it's there's an $8 a month, just like buying a latte at Starbucks or something. <laughs> yeah, if you're getting an expensive latte. Let's just say two cups of coffee at a local coffee shop. That's a much better metaphor. But, but now the reader can say, hey, I really value your work. And I want to support you. So you're not making all the money from, let's say, the influencer model where you're trying to place ads. You know, Substack is beautiful as a platform because there's not ads everywhere. And so you can do affiliate links and, pro- and, and kind of those kind of programs. But it's not driven by we need eyes on here to see these ads. And so the payment model, I think, is way healthier than other social media because you're not getting your attention is not getting sold you are deciding to support a writer that you value your work and so a success for me if we're thinking about kind of best possible is that i can get my work in front of people that value it and that i can kind of be part of this new or let's say emerging kind of creative economy where the link between support and the artist is no more direct and less middlemen, but then also that this can become something that can pivot into you know more traditional opportunities for publishing. So that's the kind of second part. The first part of the question, you are asking creative process, right? Yeah, so for the first part, really, what does your writing process look like currently on the Substack? So right now I'm trying out a bunch of stuff. So I'm doing weekly posts and I'm posted, I'd say probably about 10 posts or so. Right now I'm trying a couple different things. So it's really kind of experimentation. I'm doing a series on the seven lamps of prose, which I've really enjoyed thinking about and writing about, which is more talking specifically about writing and engaging kind of the craft not the craft in its entirety like we do on the podcast, but the craft of writing in a more precise way. So prose writing and kind of using John Ruskin's The Seven Lamps of Architecture as a lens. So I'm trying out the series. I've also done some more kind of more traditional creative nonfiction with my cruise dispatch. So that was a recount of our trip this summer. So I'm doing that, doing some smaller kind of just 
interesting information pieces. So I did one on Steinbeck's Blackwing pencil in, in kind of a more literary, historical, I don't know what you want to call it, like a an, an interest piece like that. And then also, so those are probably my big ones that I'm balancing, like interest pieces that are maybe going to consider a specific topic or specific I'm really I'm spinning wheels on this because I'm working it out. I feel like in my mind right now, uh, but an interest piece, more creative nonfiction that's going to be you know weaving ideas with narrative, and then also more literary minded nonfiction. So one of my inspirations, and maybe I should pivot a bit to inspiration here, is that you've got people on Substack doing like <laughs> informal scholarly work that's really great, and then they're able to almost. You know, you've got some people doing that, and then you've got other people who can do kind of personal travel narratives or more traditional creative nonfiction. And then you've got people who are talking about the creative process. And then a lot of times these lines blur where people are talking about, yeah, creative process, but also, you know, something that's compelling that they've started using or a book that they're reading. And then you see these lines between genres kind of start to blur in a lot of ways. And so right now, I'm testing out the different things that I'm interested in reading. And so, for example, to get a bit practical, there's a substack, The Night Does Not End. And this is all about Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. And it's written written by Aaron Gwynn, who is a novelist and a professor. And he basically does these really awesome posts that engage like chapter by chapter or motif by motif of Blood Meridian. So it's like an academic scholarly article without the footnotes. And so it's a really cool niche that he's got. But then there's also publications like The Contender with David Coggins, the W.M. Brown Weekly, and there are these other travel, men's lifestyle writers that are interested in fly fishing and style and living and these kind of broader creative nonfiction slash something else. And they're writing, and I'm enjoying that. And then there's people that are doing kind of developing their own ideas or responding to Wendell Berry. And like, there's just so, there's this amalgamation. And you can even tell I'm having a hard time categorizing everything because people really get to explore their interests in a really meaningful way, right? So there is some kind of niche carving out of, you know, I do this, but it's also really hard to nail down what exactly that is. Because like for the contender, Right, David Coggins, who is you know one of the people who inspired me to do this, he will write something on a fly fishing trip to Montana, or he may write something about a restaurant that he loved, and and it's more than just a recount. You know, it's like a meditation on what's changing, how things have changed on society, on culture, and so they become these really interesting nonfiction pieces where the interests are converging. So I'm trying to bring a lot of these different interests of my own together with dwelling. So to get continue this behind the scenes look here, share maybe how often you're going to put it out, who you're targeting. Is there a specific time when you post like any of the tactical stuff you've been learning? I think would be really interesting as well. Yeah, absolutely. So right now I'm shooting for every week, early in the week, and I'm really writing for 
I'm writing for the audience of publications that I like to read. And so I've been kind of thinking about The Contender. I've been thinking about the, there's a publication, Over the Field, by Hayden Turner, who talks about agriculture and ecology and tradition and culture. There's the Abbey of Misrule. There, there's these all these kind of subsects that I'm interested to in. I'm kind of writing for those audiences. And so I'm trying to kind of take those interests and say, well, how can dwelling become one that's in a broader constellation of those interests. So mm-hmm. right now, doing every week, I think that's kind of the move because more than that seems excessive on the kind of attention that I can hope to get from an audience. And actually, it's not like everyone reads it the first day. <laughs> kind of like with our podcast, we usually get a pretty big jump like the first day or two, and then it goes down. But this has been more of like a steady, let's say 30 to 40% of the people that are subscribed read it the first day, but then everyone kind of catches up over the week. Mm-hmm. And so I really want to put out high quality pieces. And so the weekly kind of rhythm has been, I think, working now. I don't know if it'll continue to be what I end up with, but I I don't want to just clog people's mailboxes with low-quality stuff, right? I I want to try to be consistent, but I want to keep it good, but also just kind of understand that, yeah, people have got limited amount of bandwidth to to even read, so you don't want to overwhelm that. It seems like with this kind of content, if you post on social media, it's irrelevant in a week, but if you post on a blog or a newsletter, it's something that I can come back to later whenever I want to and really dive in and get focused and read through it. I think we've covered a lot of the general questions that I had on dwelling in particular. Is there anything else that you want to just share about the project, why you're excited about it, or anything else before we get into how to launch one? Yeah, I would just, yeah, encourage, check it out. I feel like I've stumbled over kind of describing it on this podcast, but go check it out. You know, I do think it's something that is going to kind of come into its own. So I think it's it's still it's still young. The lines yeah. are still blurry, and so I appreciate you kind of enduring my my ineffable gestures at, at what it's going to be. But yeah, I'd love to talk about the nitty-gritty specifics of starting the Substack. You know, maybe it would be helpful, Colby, for you to say something about kind of newsletters in general. I mean, this is something that I encountered from you. I mean, you were on some of these big, like James Clear's newsletter, Austin Cleon's newsletter, well before me. And so I kind of followed you, like in, you know, my discovery of so much good music. So maybe you could say something about, you know, why people do newsletters, you know, what role they play in the world of products, because I'd love to just hear your thoughts about what's the value of a newsletter? Why should you start one? What is it, you know, who fits this bill? Why is this a good tool? You know, who's it a good tool for? something you spent a lot of time thinking about in marketing. So maybe you could say something about newsletters in general, and then that can kind of transition to what Substack's becoming because it, you know, it started as just a newsletter service. Yeah, I would love to. I have even been thinking specifically about this in the past week, and there's a, there's a really helpful article out there by Corey Haynes, who's a marketer in the software space, and he talks about marketing in these three big buckets. It's called the ORB Framework, O-R-B, So there's owned channels, rented channels, and borrowed channels. So owned channels are things that you directly own. They are the relationship between you and the the audience is direct. So that is email lists and maybe the RSS feed of your podcast, your website, 
the home of your brand. Like it's something that barring something illegal or whatever, there's not really anything that can take it away from you. Then you have the next level up, which is rented channels. And these are things like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, so social media platforms, YouTube, Google search, so SEO. These are the channels that there's sort of a middleman between you and the audience in the sense that I don't actually, I can see who my Instagram followers are. I don't know what their email is though. And I can't grab my Instagram followers and then transfer them over to another app or something like that. Oh, the last, sorry, the last thing on rented is that there's a another mediation in terms of algorithms typically, which means, you know, there's a, whether it's a non-chronological algorithm or there's some kind of dials that you can't turn that prevents the listener from really getting or the audience from receiving from you. Or there's the potential for shadow baiting, the potential for being your account getting, you know, removed or different things that can happen that, again, reveal that you don't own the audience. And then the third is those borrowed channels, which is pretty straightforward, just borrowing different channels from people to get in front of their audience. So that could be being a guest blogger, being a guest on someone's podcast or taking over someone's Instagram for the day or even just having people promote your work in some way, you're expanding your reach to a new audience. And so the idea of this framework is you can you want to grow your own channels because they're the most valuable. They compound and they are something that you could you can monetize, you could sell or you can just get value from yourself. But you kind of have to work down from you, how do you build your rented channels? Well, you get more people on your Twitter by being shared. So you have to go to borrow channels first and get shared. And then you build your Twitter. Then your Twitter builds your email newsletter. And so it's all interconnected. That was long-winded, but I think it's helpful to set up that framework because newsletters otherwise are just another idea, another tactic that you're just going to get distracted by. And maybe it's not a good fit for you. And so I think that it's helpful to see the forest before you look at the specific tree of newsletters. Any questions on that? Because that, that doesn't really answer your question. That That's just my setup, but... No, that's helpful. Keep keep it rolling. Okay, so I think that newsletters obviously are very valuable because one, they're an own channel. Two, getting a little more specific, you have a list of emails and you can move, regardless of whether you use Substack or whatever, you actually have that list of emails. Email is so valuable because it's been around for over 50 years. It's the gateway that people use to create accounts on just about every service. It's one to many. You know, you send an email to 50 people, but they all sort of feel that personalization that, hey, Carter sent this to me. It's not just me scrolling through an Instagram feed and seeing something that was sent to everyone. And these are not new ideas that I'm sharing here, really a lot that I've learned from others, but It's a very powerful channel because it's so personal, because it's so perennial. The last reason I think it's valuable is because it's also a little bit less sexy than growing your TikTok. Like you're not going to go viral starting an email newsletter. It's possible, but unlikely. And yet there's newsletters like James Clear's 321 Thursday email that have over a million subscribers. That's so much more powerful than having a million views on a TikTok video because he can send them an email and say, hey, my book is on sale on Amazon. Go buy it for $8.99. And he can directly benefit from that in a different way than just a random algorithm of people. Enough on why it's valuable. So, I, And I'm excited about learning more about Substack from you because it's relatively new in the larger space of things and seems to be growing. Yeah, and I think I think the Substack space, I mean, they just released the notes feature 
in the last couple of months, which has been kind of, you know, they got some flack, like this is just Twitter, but it's not. It, it, it looks a lot like Twitter, right? But basically, it, it's a way in which now these newsletters are no longer little silos, but they can start to engage with each other and, and basically restack, so like a retweet, basically, other substacks. And so it's been this kind of, you know, from what I can tell, pretty revolutionary for the people on Substack. I mean, the people that I'm listening to and and discovering, they're all talking about how helpful this is. Because before this, it seemed like Substack, and again, I jumped in a couple months ago around the time that notes appeared. Before then, you've got your newsletter, right? Your list of emails that's going to the to the inbox. But now you've got like your publication on Substack, on the app, on the platform. And so what's neat about this is it's not driven by we need to get users on the platform so we can sell ads. It's driven Mm -hmm. by we should get users on the platform so they can discover other newsletters and find more content that way. And so I really do think it's a healthier way to, to interface for creatives. And you're not getting little captions. I mean, you're not getting the little tiny mini blurbs that you get from other social media. You're getting people that are putting serious effort into writing high-quality content for a platform, right? So I guess it is social media. I mean, I don't even know what you would qualify Substack as. I mean, it's like a publication platform that you can explore. And so it's really exciting because I just, I feel like, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about social media and teaching about it in my undergraduate classes. This, as Substack, seems to try to solve a lot of these incentive problems with more advertisements, more merchandise pushed, more attention, you know, short-term, grab you, grab you, grab you, grab you. And it's really designed for people to do meaningful long-term, you know, long-form content. I mean, it's it's a really neat, helpful design, and it's ex- especially exciting for creative. So it's almost maybe the next step in evolution for the newsletter. Now it's like your newsletter is pinging in people's inbox, but they can also come to your page on Substack and see your archive and go through you know your series that you've done and then they can go to the explore feature and they can find people that are you know similar to you or you've got a recommendations now that you can recommend other newsletters and so it's really starting to cross pollinate so it seems like it's in the maybe the borrowed stage has been put onto it yeah that's uh, that's what I'm wrestling with cuz on the one hand I was looking at their site just now and it, I mean they say you know you always own your intellectual property mailing list and subscriber payments. We with full editorial control no gatekeepers you do the work you believe in. So they're 100% giving you the ownership but if you were building you know carterjohnson.com or something like that or dwelling.com you would be building domain authority whereas you all as writers on Substack are building their domain authority. So they are yeah. getting, they're creating a huge amount of value and wealth in millions of hits on the same domain yeah. and backlinks to the same domain, which is a huge SEO play for them, honestly. Just smart. But it also provides you a lot of value because you don't have to spend 10 hours coming up with a design and doing all this stuff that is not really the work of writing and is not Tons really- Tons of value, yeah. So it, it feels to me like, there's an aspect of it. There is a little bit of a borrowed 
category in in the website side of it, but I think that it's well worth what you get out of it. And worst case, you could take your email list in three years and move. And so it's okay. Like Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so my challenge right now, and this is going to be the challenge, I think, for a lot of people that are wanting to start a Substack, is growing the audience. So it's like, I don't do really any of the other social media. So it's not like I'm trying to migrate an audience that's already interested. I'm trying to kind of build it from the ground up on Substack, which has been exciting. And what's interesting about it is, you know, I've really benefited from the new kind of interconnectivity of the platform. And so being able to go on to publications that I enjoy and see the people who are reading those publications and, you know, and subscribe to them, it's led to some really neat connections where I'm getting not just another follower. It's like I'm getting followers now that are interested in the same publications that I like to read. And so it's like, that's not a one-to-one follower, follower. Like that's a total different thing than a regular Twitter or Instagram follower, I feel like. Like there seems to be a lot more value because again, like you said, you know this follower to the extent that you know they're interested in these topics. And they've subscribed to this. And oftentimes people subscribe, at least the public profiles, to like less newsletters because this is more like, hey, there's a good 50 to 100 voices that I really enjoy hearing that, you know, come a month, not a 2,000 plus network of things because you just don't have that time to read it. So it's fostering, I think, smaller but more invested communities. Does that Does that make sense? Yeah, less but better. I love that. If you were to start a Substack, how how do you start a Substack? Like, what do you need to have in place, or how do you come up with a name, or come up with the big ideas? Choose the categories you're going to write about. Like, what do you kind of need to have in place to kickstart your own project if someone's interested in doing that? Well, this is kind of funny because I think you're the one to tell me this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've got more insight on kind of what needs. I mean, even what you've been working on lately has been really helpful for me. So maybe maybe you could could sketch a little bit about that. I mean, I'm glad to share kind of personal experience with, you know, my kind of guiding light was how can I do the thing that I enjoy someone else is doing? You know, it's like I see people succeeding in writing the things that I think I could write about. And so that was kind of my guiding light. What are the things I'm interested in? But also, you know, what am what am I, you know, got passion for this idea of dwelling and cultivating a place and tradition and environmentalism and, and community and these sort of things. How can I bring those together? And it's almost like the doppelganger of my scholarly interests are in all those things, but scholarly, this would be the nonfiction side of all those things. And then also, how can I create the content or, or write the, the essays that I want to read? So that's been kind of my guiding light and decisions like what I'm going to write about, about pages, how I'm going to kind of turn it. Dwelling's a huge idea for me, you know, personally, you know, in, in the scholarly realm and in, in all these different realms. And so that was kind of something that was just right in the front of my vision. So I would say, you know, find things that you enjoy that and see what people are doing to make that successful. And then try to kind of follow those. Like if, if you see someone you admire do a certain type of post, try to find your version of that and give it a try, right? And see if that is something that sticks, something that's conducive for you to write. And so I think imitation 
in a healthy way, not in a rote way where you're kind of, you know, mimicking a voice, but imitation in a healthy way, I think is a great place to start as deciding what to write about, how to write about it, and those sort of things. But I would love, you know, maybe you could say some more about some of those helpful metrics to get in place before you before you jump into it. Because I think you helped me a lot with some of those because there is a way in which I just said can be really unproductive and can be messy and you can be missing all the right cues. Uh, and so you've even helped me kind of refine my thinking about the publication, even if I kind of struggle here to, to articulate it precisely. But in my mind, it's been much more refined through our conversation. So maybe you could share some of those things that we even talked about that you've been writing on. Well, first of all, I was going to say, I think it's such a great point that you bring up that I've heard someone call it modeling, just like modeling after the best practices. If you go to certain, the top 10 substacks, they probably have gotten there for a good reason. So correlation doesn't equal causation, but at the same time, like you could take some general principles from those and try to thoughtfully look through them and say, okay, what's working for them and how could I emulate that? But then the second thing is that a great way to think about, you know, who am I writing for is, well, what do I like listening to? Oh, I like listening to John Bellion. Maybe I should be making music for John Bellion fans. If they like John Bellion, would they like my art? That's actually just for me personally sparking an idea of like, yeah, that helps me think about audience a little bit. Yeah. It's like thinking about Amazon, people also bought, you know, people read this with, you know, it's almost like where would I fit under which artist would I fit if I was showing up on an Amazon page like that. But I think, yeah, like what you said is great. Maybe backing further up, identifying why you're starting it and getting really crystal clear on that is probably the biggest thing because it's easy to get excited again with a new channel. I should start TikTok. I should start this. And I think it's easy to just feel like you have to have every single channel that marketers talk about when really the best marketing for any company, product, artist, brand, whatever is thoughtful and does less, but better. We use SEO, not just because it's a buzzword, but because it actually gets us people in front of our brand. Or we use email because this is long form writing that I've already been doing that fits really well. So I think that's the most important thing to tackle before you go to, okay, what is my brand? What's the name? And what's the about page look like? And then kind of the basic one line pitch, all that other stuff. That's so good because it's like Substack set up for writers. I mean, it really is like the the thing that I'm trying to to work on. I mean, it's set up for writers who want to build small invested communities. I mean, it's it kind of is right. I mean, it's if you own a AC company, it's like you probably don't need a Substack. <laughs> like, are you know? I, I mean, if you, I'm thinking of like other creatives though. I mean, I think a mu- musicians could have some meaningful things on Substack, but it's probably not your number one priority. But it just depends, yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you have a podcast, you can podcast through Substack. So that's an interesting combo. We Maybe one day The Craft could do that. If you're interested in uh, getting a Substack from The Craft, let us know. But I think you're right. Like writing could be your secondary thing. Like you could be writing about, I am super passionate about mixed media art and I write about that process yeah, to grow yeah, my audience sure. but, and to present the art that I'm working on. But it's it's like definitely a good, good screener to ask yourself, how much do I really enjoy writing? Because with any of these things, there's that Seth Godin idea of the dip. You know, it's going to be super exciting at first and then really hard for a long time. And then there's a lot of growth after that valley and that dip. So 
are you willing to go through that dip is a good question to ask before, which I'm, I'm sure for you, you are, because this is something that you have been doing for a long history now and something that you want to do. Yeah, and it's interesting too of like, if you just want to give updates, it may be a good fit, but that might be a different use of Substack than kind of what I'm trying to do. Or at least there are people that, you know, it's like you could just do it with, there may be a difference between having a good mail list, email, newsletter, and trying to build a Substack presence. Like there are some writers here who have a Substack presence. It's like their own little publication that they have that people are coming to to explore. And so maybe you could accomplish, if you're just trying to get eyeballs on your upcoming album, you know, it may be more helpful to get volume. And I don't, you know, Substack is not set up for volume as the number one priority, but something like a more traditional social media, Instagram, Twitter, that's going to be much more conducive to get more eyes on these announcements. So I think that's what I was trying to get at too, of like, if it's just going to get used to like market something else that you're doing, I feel like Substack probably wouldn't be the best way to do it because it's just not set up for discoverability like other things are. Is that making sense? I think everyone in their marketing plan needs an email list, but not everyone needs a Substack. Boom. Because you need the emails. You, you want to email. convert You want to convert your Instagram followers to a list of emails because then you can say, hey, I just dropped this new album and I have, I'm selling these vintage vinyls or I'm selling a t-shirt but you don't need a Substack to do that. Yeah, dude, that's really helpful. So yeah, I think going back to your advice, you gotta be kind of clear. And although I, I doubt I've articulated well this episode, there was a number of things that really prompted me that Substack was the way to go, right? It was other writers that were doing it. It was changes in, in publication kind of culture. It was shifts. It was you know my own availability of resources. I mean, all sorts of things were kind of pointing at Substack. So I feel like in that regards, this was you know a two thumbs up for me of having a clear purpose. And you helped me refine that too of not only practicing but also using this to leverage other more traditional publications, developing a you know committed following, these sort of things. That's probably a great place to start. What do you hope to get out of Substack? Why are you coming to it? And then knowing the limitations up front, I mean, I don't anticipate this to be a fast-growing thing. I mean, it's not, like you said, I mean, virality is not as much, you know, things going viral. It's not as conducive to that, although there's, some, you know, some upticks. But, yeah, understand that it is kind of a long-form thing if you don't have, you know, a pre-existing audience that you're trying to, you know, kind of roll right over. Yeah. Well, this was really interesting, man. It was fun to talk through these things and hear about dwelling. So I last plug I'll give is if you're interested in reading Carter's dwelling, getting inspiration for starting your own or just enjoying his writing, maybe checking out the seven lamps of prose. You can do that at carterdavisjohnson.substack.com and subscribe. You'll get the emails once a week in your inbox and they are high quality, no fluff. So definitely check that out. And uh, yeah, I think that's it. Any other thoughts before we wrap? This was a useful conversation for me. So thanks for letting us kind of hash out some of this on the podcast. Yeah, I think we should tap in later to talk about how's the Substack growth going? Yeah, we should. What is, how is your writing changing? Feedback oh, yeah. process? That's really How good. do you draft up the content? Go from like, I've got a bunch of ideas to 
sitting here and I'm sketching an outline to I'm actually writing the final thing. Like I'd love to get in the details of that too. I would love to talk about growth too. I mean, I think there's some interesting things. I've been thinking a lot about it lately. So, mm. yeah. Uh, and we've talked, I think, what did we mention? Like talking about growth and the slimy side of growth and like, how do you do it the right way? That's not sleazy and yeah. kind of cringy. So I think that'd be a fun episode because it's hard as an artist to like put myself out there. Dude, and totally. How do you do it in a, in a good way? So good things all coming up in the future on the craft. <laughs> awesome, man. We'll talk to you later. Hey, thanks for listening to the craft with Carter and Colby, where we share what we're learning about the creative process. If you're a writer, music producer, marketer, filmmaker, photographer, or you just love creativity, then this show is for you. Our cover art was designed by Elizabeth Newell. You can learn more about her work at elizabethnewelldesign.com. That's Elizabeth, N-E-W-E-L-L, design.com. And you can follow her on Instagram at elizabethisadesigner. If you like the show, there's three things you can do to help us out. First, subscribe so you learn when we post new episodes. Second, send the link to one of your friends who you think would enjoy the show. Uh, Really, word of mouth is going to be the the number one way we grow the show in any way. And three, if you have a topic you want us to cover or feedback about how we can improve the show or comments on what we've said, you can respond to heycraftpodcast at gmail.com, H-E-Y-C-R-A-F-T podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.